0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Really
1: well, Forrest. Thank you. And I've already had a good time during our prep before we started recording. Thank you for putting up with me. Maybe that's part of the 80-80
0: relationship that we're going to learn more about. I love putting up with you, Dad. Putting up with you is one of my favorite things, particularly when you come into the recording studio fired out of a cannon. We're talking about ancient relationships and modes of relating, which may or may not infiltrate into today's conversation, where we are joined by Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Kaylee is an executive coach and expert on small group dynamics. And Nate is a best-selling author and founding partner at Mindful, which is one of the world's largest mindfulness media and training companies. And together, as you said, they're the co-authors of The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger relationship. Before we get started with Nate and Kaylee, just a couple of quick reminders. First, if you could subscribe to the podcast, if you're listening and haven't done that yet, it really helps us out. Second, if you prefer watching video rather than listening to audio, you can find my channel on YouTube where I post video versions of all of the episodes. And then finally, if you'd like to support us in other ways, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. So Nate, Kaylee, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing?
2: Already having fun.
0: Doing great. Awesome. Great to hear. And Kaylee, you have a really strong background in training high-performing teams and understanding how to get groups to work better together. And Nate, your training is actually in philosophy. You have a PhD from Princeton. You were an associate professor at Pepperdine and you're really engaged with mindfulness practice. And so if I were choosing like two CVs to pair together, to create a functional relationship, those would be pretty high up the totem pole for me. (laughs) But one of the things that I really like about your work is that you're really transparent with how for a long time you had your own struggles in your relationship. And this book and your work in general these days, working with couples, is largely born out of those. And I was wondering if you would be comfortable sharing a bit about that as we begin here.
3: Well, let's start at the beginning. It really all goes back to high school chemistry class. Kaylee and I went to the same high school (laughs) in Boulder, where we still live. I love those. And... We started dating and we went to senior prom together and then we broke up, went to the same college, got back together seven years later when the timing was right. And so it all started in this kind of like Instagram-worthy Cinderella way. It was like the perfect love story. And of course, we got married a couple of years after we got back together in our 20s. And then a series of events happened that really rocked us. So I was finishing my PhD, which... Rick, and for anybody else who's done this knows, like (laughs) it's kind of like a strange battle, an inner battle to see if you can make it to the end of that process. I also had a serious bike accident at the time. We were in our first year of marriage Mm, mm -hmm. and the wheels basically totally came off. I mean, we went from this perfect love story to wondering why did we marry this person and Mm -hmm. really got very close to the edge of divorce. And so that experience, I think, was really, I mean, this is now 17 years ago, but that was a seminal moment in the creation of this book because it really made us think, wow, for two people who on paper seem so well-matched to get that close to divorce, mm-hmm. what the heck is going on? And, and that really led to a lot of inquiry and exploration. But at the root of a lot of what was happening then and what continued to show up in our relationship was this struggle for fairness, for finding, you know, the perfect balance of 50-50 and feeling like we weren't quite there. We were doing more. The other person was doing less. And that really inspired the whole project. It inspired us to interview about 100 people for this book. And, and that was kind of the, the genesis of all of this. Kaylee, did you want to add to that at
2: all?
1: Set the record straight, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> that That
2: is very much the record. As straight as I remember it, I suppose memory is always suspect. I think the, the piece that I would add is, as we recovered in our early relationship, the next huge curveball thrown our way was when we had our daughter. That yeah. some of the coping strategies that worked when it was just the two of us really came under siege as we became parents. And so I think the book is really valuable for any relationship where there are two committed people. And when you're Mm -hmm. kind of in the, I don't even know what to call them, the tall weeds years is where I think we didn't have any strategies. And so I think a little bit that 8080 Marriage is a book written for our prior selves because we wished we'd had it then.
0: So just as you said, the word marriage appears in the title of the book. But one of the things that I like about it is that it's really talking about a model of relationship that is possible for people. And there are a lot of different kinds of relationships out there, a lot of different forms that a relationship could take. And certainly as a not married person, I found plenty in there that I found personally useful for myself. And so you outline these three different models. You describe them as 80-20 50-50, and then your model, 80-80. Would you mind taking a moment here to quickly describe each of them and maybe some of the differences between them?
3: The starting point is the 80-20 model of relationship. And we use this as the starting point because for many couples, when they look at their models, so their parents or their grandparents, what they had modeled to them was some form of 80-20 where one partner, generally the woman, does about 80% when it comes to both managing the household, but also managing the connection and spirit of the relationship. And the other partner, generally the man, does about 20%. And what happened that I think also inspired us to take on this project is there's this massive sociological shift that we've all lived through where our generation is really one of the first generations to strive for egalitarian marriage, to be asking the question, what is it like to be equals and in love? In the eighty twenty model, that's that's not really the question. It's it's a model based on inequality with some virtues, but but you know it's looking back, it's it's not the ideal structure. So enter our generation where all of a sudden we're asking this question: Well, what does it mean to be equals and in love? The default answer to that question, which is the answer we came up with, and when we interview couples, it's like the central struggle of many couples now, is to say, well, we can be equals by trying to make everything perfectly. 50 50 fair. And I'm going to keep a mental scorecard of all the amazing things that I do and all the ways in which you've fallen short. And if we can find this 50 50 balance, somehow we will ascend to the heavens of marital bliss and it'll be amazing. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way.
2: (laughs) And what I think is just like because we do so much criticism of 50 50, I do want to just nod in the direction to say it was a really great attempt. It was an, it was an improvement. It came from such a good place. And so while it didn't actually work, there was something inspired about this notion of, Hey, partnership, intimate relationship, connection. It can be more than just roles that we inherited. And that's so important, especially as you pointed out that relationships are not limited to marriage anymore, that there's committed partnership, certainly same-sex couples, many of whom are married, some of whom are not, even just early dating, starting with this notion of we want to meet each other as partners and as equals sets a really different stage.
3: Yeah. Well, so that kind of sets the stage for 80-80, which is what we are describing here today. And the basic idea is that one way out of this Deadlock where we're trying to achieve fairness, experiencing resentment, never quite getting there is to just shift the goalpost radically. What would happen if we tried to contribute 80% in our relationship, knowing that it's a mathematical impossibility? It makes no sense. But the, the spirit there is what we call radical generosity. And when we interviewed couples looking at the differences between the couples who are thriving and the couples who are really stuck, this spirit of radical generosity and shared success. Was what really stood out, and so that's the the basic idea behind eighty eighty. We can get into the details, of course, but that's the overview.
1: So, Kaylee, you said something I wanted to follow up on. So now, let's say we're talking about couples, and the general principle, of course, as Forrest points out, of eighty eighty could apply to two people sitting next to each other in different cubicles in a corporation, right? They both lean in toward taking that extra step we're leaning into their own generosity without a lot of uh, really, really narrow scorekeeping while paying attention over the long haul, obviously, to issues of equity and fairness and so forth. So if I'm understanding this in the home, now we have a couple of some kind in a home, and there are home tasks. There are parenting tasks or housework tasks. There are different kinds of tasks. And then there are relationship tasks as well as sort of the executive responsibility for the relationship, holding the relationship in one's mind. So I'm just trying to get at, if we really narrowly look at the 80-80 flow that's focused on the relationship itself, distinct from how people balance different workloads of different kinds, all right? How does 80-80 look when it's focused on the relationship between two people?
2: What you're describing really well is that there are actually two pillars to 8080. And so, one pillar is about the relationship, and we call that the mindset that how you're experiencing and approaching your partner, that's the mindset component. And that's really more focused on the relationship itself. Hmm. Radical generosity is comprised of contribution. What am I doing in service of the relationship? Appreciation. What are the glasses that I wear? Am I looking for the ways that my partner falls short or am I looking for the ways that my partner is also contributing? And revealing, which is really this communication skill. Mm. Why that's so important is that there is a second piece to 8080, which is the structure. What are your values? From those values, what are your priorities? In order to protect your priorities, how are you setting boundaries? And within those, how do you want to divide the tasks? How do you want to create roles in your relationship? But what we found is that if people just skip to the structure part, right? They sort of skip to the second half of the book and they're like, great, here are some exercises. These are amazing. Let's lay out our roles. And they haven't first shifted their mindset to radical generosity. You can actually litigate some of the structures, and you're back to 50-50 in a way that's much less skillful and much less supportive of the connection in the relationship than it is when you shift your mindset first.
0: Would you mind giving some examples of how 50-50 showed up in your relationship in problematic ways that led to conflict for you? One of
3: my favorite examples is we used to live in Los Angeles and travel home to visit our families in Colorado. hmm and so the question then arose, well, how are we going to divide the time that we're spending with my family and that we're spending mm. with Kaylee's family? And so we came up with this pretty genius system, we thought, where we would spend two days, Christmas Eve and Christmas, with my family and then three days with her family. They got the bonus day because they didn't get the holiday itself. So they got like an extra day because of that. <laughs> and and we thought All we right. had achieved this perfectly fair... Situation, but then we would have these explosive fights, like some of the worst fights in our relationship around the exact hour of transition where we would go from my family's house to her family's house. So are we going to leave at six mm. or at seven is six too early is you know is it too late right so so that's one example of an extended family fight that showed up and and really, when you boil that down, what is that about? It's just about trying to make things fair. And feeling the resentment that comes with somehow the structure isn't fair and you're getting more and I'm getting less and I'm putting out too much. I'm being taken advantage of here in this situation. And it led to some really explosive conflict.
2: This is actually, I think, quite funny. Just this morning, our daughter, who's now 11, she came into the kitchen and she was like, mom and dad, there's this amazing new tool that parents can use to make sure things are fair. And of course, we started giggling. We're like, tell us about it is apparently, it's like a little spinner like you would do to choose a color in a board game and it alternates, mom, dad, mom, dad. And whenever there's a task that someone doesn't want to do, whose turn is it to drive to school? Whose turn is it to go shop for the uniform that you need for the violin (laughs) concert? You would spin the little dial and depending on whether or not it landed on mom and dad, really you would turn over fairness to fate. Just
0: leave it in the hands of the gods, right there. I it's mean, hilarious. hey, it's, it's one way to solve the problem for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what what I think you're describing, and what I've definitely seen show up in my relationships, is the ways in which that we can fall into patterns of of relating and behaving with other people, right? Like I've definitely had relationships where I felt fundamentally that i I wasn't sure if my partner was as in as I was. I wasn't sure if they were doing their fair share of the efforting. I felt like I was doing more than they were. and that mindset moved me essentially into a scarcity stance, right? You know, the pie was small, and therefore I had to fight for my chunk of it. and that leads to viewing the world a certain kind of way. And with a framework like 8080, you're trying to break out of that view and establish more of a, if you want to think of it as an abundance mindset or a generosity stance or however you want to frame that. But a lot of the time, it's really hard to break those systems and the models that we have in our relationships, right? Because it becomes this kind of self fulfilling prophecy where I think that I'm not getting enough. So I really push on the other person. They push back on me. It becomes defensive. The pattern becomes ingrained. What do you do with people to start to move them toward more of that generous stance, that different way of doing the relationship?
2: The first piece is to notice exactly what you were describing, which is often it starts with your mindset. Am I looking at my partner through glasses of appreciation? where I see all the ways that you've shown up for me, I am grateful for the night that you planned for us or the way that you showed up thoughtfully when I was in conflict or stressed, or am I looking at my partner through glasses of comparison or through scarcity where now I'm looking for all the ways that you fell short? Why that's so important is that we find what we're looking for. If I go looking for all the ways that you've fallen short, I will find them. If I go looking for the laundry that you didn't do and the way that you didn't ask me the question that I wanted you to, I will find it. In contrast, if I go looking for the way that you were really kind in the text that you sent me before I walked into a difficult meeting, or if I go looking for, you turn on the coffee pot for me? like That was so thoughtful. Mm. I'll find that too. I think for us, there's also, as we think about our relationships, often this pattern is worth naming because we'll frame it as a complaint about our partner. Ugh, they're just not doing their part. They're not showing up. But what's also happening is I'm perpetuating that. So I'll give you an example. When Nate and I were early married, we... uh <laughs> I was very much an over-contributor and I may or may not have been completely controlling. And <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I, I would Nate <laughs> <laughs> didn't say it, true confessions. And I would give him assignments. And it really felt almost like a like a manager to an employee, where I'd be like, yeah, Hey, yeah. babe, can you clean the grill? And he'd mm-hmm. be like, sure, it's on my list. And a week later, and I come back and be like, So what's up with the grill? Are you going to clean that? Indeed, I will, babe. It's on my list. And then this frustration would mount, and I would get so irritated. Well, in my micromanagement, in my nagging, and the way that I set that up, in some ways, I created resistance in him to feeling my control, to feeling sort of my perfectionism around something as ridiculous Mm. as cleaning a grill.
1: You know, a different person might frame that. No offense, Nate, but (laughs) we're we're gonna use you for science here or something, I don't know. But I mean, a different person would frame (laughs) that, that in effect, the error was not creating a time agreement from the get-go in a way that respected the autonomy of each person. And then presuming there was a time agreement, which in this case there wasn't, then the issue is the other person didn't keep the time agreement. And since we already are implicitly talking about gender, so many women in heterosexual relationships complain that their partner just does not take their agreements or word as seriously at home as they do at work. So it's a more substantial issue. And so maybe the 80-80 frame is a way into resolving that kind of thing?
2: It's certainly a way into starting the conversation. And it's also a way into shifting the expectation Because a lot of this, I think, also comes from there's a historical legacy that often just clouds the way that roles completely unconsciously get divided. That most couples enter into a relationship and they don't have any sort of thoughtful conversation about who's going to do what, where do different talents lie, where do different interests lie. And all of a sudden, There's a completely uneven set of things that folks are doing. And so it becomes this notion of nagging or delegation or whatever it is. And it's a really interesting check. I did it for myself where I started looking at all the things that I was doing and I asked myself, why am I doing this? And the answer was often, because my mom did. And as we sort of interrogated that answer, that wasn't really a very good one. Nate, I'd love to hear from you too.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the big theme here is that there's this fundamental shift that's possible from having everything happen by accident and having everything that happens, the structures be unconscious to creating more intention and bringing in consciousness. And I think if there's one shift that we can make in relationships that has the power to really change the underlying culture of the relationship, it's that. Because As Kaylee said, people tend to fall into roles and the various structures of their relationship totally by accident. So making that shift where we start to look more intentionally at these structures, I mean, one example is roles. When we would ask couples in our interviews, how did you determine the roles in your relationship? Who does what? They would almost all say some version of, I don't know, we just kind of winged it, which is the approach most couples take. There are a few exceptions that we came across, actually largely same-sex couples. But, you know, there's an alternative to this winged approach, which is a more intentional approach where we sort of live by design instead of by accident.
1: One thing I really like about it, what you're saying is, is the we frame. It's a we frame. And there's also, you know, in, in effect, a calling to personal responsibility and underlying it all, and I'm I'm reflecting on both your background, certainly what I know of yours, Nate, this underlying valuing of a kind of unbounded generosity as what is arising a like a wellspring within us and flowing outward that
3: feeds us along the way, actually, in, in ways that are really quite profound. I think that generosity, appreciation, which I think ties into gratitude. And Rick, I'm reminded of your, one of, I think it was your first book, Buddha's Brain. That was my
1: second one. Our, oh, was the second. Actually, our first one. Yeah, go on. But I'll tell you about the first one because it's very relevant here too.
3: Go on. 2010, I'm in a yoga class in Venice Beach, California. And the person next to me says, have you read Buddha's Brain? And I was like, oh, I gotta hey. go out and get this book. So this is uh, now 12 years later. And, and one of the things that I loved about that book and your work in general is this reminder to take in the good and the power of gratitude and the power of savoring that gratitude. And so, you know, just really simple things like that, that simple practice, Kaylee and I do it before we go to bed every night, it takes 30 seconds. So it's it's not time consuming. It's not difficult to do. And yet we end the day in this totally different mind space. And and so I think That's one of the things I've learned from you, Rick, and and your work, but it's, it's, I think, very powerful here as well, is just like sprinkling the day in your relationship with these moments where you're touching back to something like contribution and generosity or appreciation.
1: I appreciate that. And just briefly, I, I think that one of the things that's so, so helpful for all of us is to ask ourselves, what's our ground of being or what's the origin point? in any situation and to reset, to come home. You know, our resting state when we're not disturbed or desperate or hungry is pretty good. You know, it's like why zebras don't get ulcers. You know, the title of Sapolsky's excellent book, obviously. Our resting state when we kind of feel essentially safe enough, satisfied enough and connected enough is a really pretty good place. So reestablishing our, ourselves in a home base and then from it that, asking ourselves, and I I think this is exactly what you're talking about, how do I want to come into this relationship, right? What do I want to myself focus on? What do I want to be giving into the relationship? Where do I want to come from? How do I want to be here? Do I want to be irritable and pissy and critical? Hey, I can go there, (laughs) you know, or... (laughs) Do I want to be fairly calm, oriented around solutions and appreciating the other person and having compassion for them along the way? It's kind of like, where do I, how do I want to be? And it keeps starting there. We tend to be so focused on how I want you to be with me. Mm. There's a place for that. You know, there's a place for that. I hope we'll get to that pretty soon. But mainly, can we focus on how do I want to be with you? How do I want me to be with you?
3: Well, and Rick, we're dying to know what was the first book?
1: It was called Mother Nurture. I mean, it, it was it came out and Pe- Penguin published it 2002, early 2002, soon after 9-11. I think in all kinds of interesting ways, it's really hard for the culture to take seriously the long-term stress and depletion of mothers, which calls into, of course, their long-term relationship with a partner, especially in modern times when the village it takes to raise a child looks more like a ghost town for most yeah. people right? And so I was smiling, Kaylee, when you were talking earlier about the arrival of your daughter and and fairness issues and all the rest. And you well know, you presented in your book, the structural unfairness in terms of the workload, stress load, and executive load when children come and the tendency when kids come to be pushed into more polarized, historically gender-based roles. One of the central things about couples is about how do you parent from the same page, How do you share the load fairly in different ways? And how do you retain an intimate friendship in ways that all three of those support each other? What do you think about all that?
2: I love that. And I love a couple different pieces. One, I love the integration of parenting and intimate relationship and intimate friendship. That one of the things that I found so interesting as we were sharing this book with the world is that people would read parenting books and they weren't shy about it. Oh, I can always be a better parent. But then they got kind of squeamish about reading a relationship book that somehow it implied that they had done something wrong or they were in trouble. And so recognizing that when you're parenting from a place of Generosity, connection, intimacy, and teamwork with your partner. It creates such a different parenting environment. I also love this teamwork aspect that the second piece of 8080 really builds on that, this notion of shared success. And I think recognizing that it is a departure from how many of us were raised. Nate and I have had this conversation several times that. Each of us was in many ways groomed to be individually successful. Get good grades in high school, take advanced classes, go to an elite university, get a great job, go to graduate school, it's somewhere prestigious, be amazing on your own. And then we got married and all of a sudden there was just like, and I'll be a team. And there was no training, there was no playbook. And it was pretty challenging to really understand how to shift from individual success to shared success. And one of the most powerful things that we've done in our relationship was we went so far as to name our team. I recognize that this is too cheesy for some, but we've actually found it really powerful that we named our team Kajona. So it's the K-A from Kaylee, it's Joe for our daughter, and then the N-A from Nate. And we'll have different conversations because as a great, for instance, when our daughter went to kindergarten, what was best for me was for Nate to meet the bus and have his workday be done at three. And what was best for Nate was for me to meet the bus at three o'clock and for my workday to be done. And so we couldn't have the conversation. We were in completely opposite directions. When we asked the question, well, what's best for Kajona? Then we could have that team, we shared success dialogue. And I think the answer often surprises us.
1: What did you
3: come up with? Or did you just use the spinner? (laughs) (laughs) At the time, when we really thought about, okay, what's best for us, not what's best for me and what's best for you, it just made sense for me to actually pull back a little bit at work and be there at the bus. And as a child, I was actually a latchkey kid, so you know I would go home and I had no parents there and That experience was so formative for me that I got to the point of being a parent and that was one of my main priorities I want to be there at the bus and mm. so that was our solution mm. but it 's a version of a conversation that we 've had now i mean it's it 's kind of a looping conversation because life changes and stages of life change and Careers change and circumstances change. So what we find is that these kinds of shared success conversations are just like a continual process. There's no end point. You know,
0: it's just kind of keeping up with the dynamic change of, of life. There is such a cool and valuable reframe in what you were saying there. Because you went from, okay, which of us has to show up at three o'clock to what is actually in alignment with my deeper values? And so you went to an emotional place, right? You went, hey, this is my experience when I was younger. This is what happened to me. And I really don't want that to happen to my daughter. Mm. And what a different place from which to answer that question. You get to the same place, you're showing up at three o'clock, but the whole stance of it is radically different. And so I think that that's just a really important thing to kind of like pull out there for a second, that just that orientation change completely changes how you relate to the problem-solving aspect of the whole thing.
3: Yeah, and I think that's a really important point that you can have the same outcome where it's from a place of, fine. You know what? I'll be the one to take the hit this time, but next time you have to yeah. cut back. Right. And, and you can imagine what life looks like. I'm still there at 315, but I'm not as present for my daughter. I'm living in just like deep resentment with Kaylee, you know, that's going to show up in all sorts of other ways. So, so it sounds trivial to shift the conversation from me to we, but it's actually like something for us that made all the difference.
0: So a lot of the things that both of you have named so far are just valuable skills on their own, right? It is a valuable skill to have a fundamental stance of generosity. It's a valuable skill to be able to take in the good. It's really useful to think about the ways in which we contribute to the problems that we have in life, including our relational problems, all of that. Like, these are just useful general skills. But a lot of the framework, I can imagine somebody listening thinking this, uh, that you're describing only kind of works if you have real shared buy-in. And there are probably people who are listening to this right now who are thinking something to the extent of, well, 80, 80 sounds great, but I am desperately trying to get 30 from my partner right now. And I'm I'm struggling for every ounce of that 30. So the whole premise of this Like, I don't know how to access that in my own life. I'm sure you've bumped into that a lot in talking to people, and I'm wondering what you think about that.
2: It showed up certainly a lot in our interviews. It also, Mm. in some ways, had some flavors in our early relationship. As we think about what happens when a partner is really under-contributing in the relationship, Mm. the tool that we think is the most helpful is Reveal and Request. Which is the ability to say to our partner, Hey, what I'm noticing is whatever it might be. I'm noticing that every activity that our kiddo signs up for, I'm responsible to source, to drive to, to figure out carpools full, and to do all of the logistics behind. And then to make a request, I would love some help with that. Mm-hmm. A couple things about this are essential. One is the tone with which it's made is a huge deal. This is sort of back to our mindset piece that if I show up with my partner with like, I can't believe that you haven't driven Junior to soccer one time, probably what I'm going to get back is resentment or defensiveness. And If I show up with the request the way that I did it the first time, it's really interesting. People who we've suggested this to initially are pretty skeptical. They're like, there is no way. Obviously, you haven't met my partner. There's no chance that's going to work. We say, just give it a try. See what happens. And the number of times that the person on the other side says some version of, I had no idea that that was even going on is really interesting and powerful where there is a willingness they just didn't know. And there's actually some really interesting cognitive biases that back this up. Part of its availability bias, I am highly aware of all of the things that I am doing, but the things that Nate's doing are, they're kind of invisible to me. I I often miss them. But All know every single time, whatever it is. I arrange a play date, I send the birthday card, I do the dishes, I, you know, order Instacart. I know all of those, but I actually have zero idea how many hours Nate spent on the phone trying to figure out how to renew our insurance. Like, those are really interesting missing pieces of data. And so, back to this situation where somebody's like, cool, I'm in. My partner's maybe not in. Start with a request and see what happens.
1: What do you do when you've done all those things? You've used wise speech, right speech. You really, you've said it, you've done it. And As you, I think, present in your book, and it's so interesting to realize that 20 years ago when I wrote Mother Nurture with a a physician and a clinical nutritionist, the latter of whom was my wife, right, we found then that on average in the typical heterosexual couple with kids, the woman was on task one way or another, child care and home care, about 20 hours a week more than her partner was taking into account also working in the world. So, just total time on task, and it's really easy to get there. You presented similar findings now twenty years later. This still adds up to about an eighteen hour differential on average per week and it's important to realize that for every partner like Nate or frankly myself, every guy who's actually pulling their weight, that means that it really pushes some situations where the discrepancies is on the order of thirty plus hours a week. It's really a big deal, and not just the time load but also the stress load classically he's uh grinding through the paperwork or mowing the lawn, she's doing high stress sibling coral management or other kinds of things, and they're much more stressful. So long story short, what do you do when you've put it out there and your partner either basically says, I make more money than you do and counts for more, so I need to mellow out watching ESPN while you take care of the kids and do the dishes, or the person says, yeah, 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 it's a great idea, but they just keep not delivering the goods.
2: Sometimes, and we did this also, it's also useful just to make really explicit what isn't, isn't happening. So Nate and I sat down and we had two sheets of paper and we just wrote out all the things that we were doing. And as we wrote them all on sheets of paper, it was important to also include emotional labor, which is what you were just describing, Rick, one of those places that is invisible. It's navigating the complexity of siblings or who's needing help at school or realizing that who gets invited and where they sit at Thanksgiving is something that actually requires forethought. Just capturing all of that so that you could look at it with data. Because our own data sets are not actually very reliable at all because of availability bias, because of overestimation, where as hard as something feels is as much as I'll count it. I think about it sort of like Calvin and Hobbes doing pushups where you count like one, two, a thousand, because that's how it feels (laughs) versus one, two, three. Once you have the data set, then you can also make decisions. What things are we doing that don't need to be done? And that takes us back to a conversation about values and about priorities That often, if I'm responding to every request that's made to me as though it's important to me, I will feel overwhelmed. Versus sometimes we look at the list and say, "Turns out we're we're not going to do that." What things could be outsourced? Particularly if you're in a financial situation where someone is using finances as a reason to not do something. That I've actually I've sat with couples before where somebody said, "Listen." I would prefer to put in an extra hour or two at the office or at work or doing whatever it is and never clean my own bathroom again. Brilliant. Let's make that trade. But if they never have the conversation, then one person just feels resentful that they're cleaning the bathroom while the other person is putting in time at work and both of them are quote unquote right. It's just taking them further apart than closer together.
0: Maybe this is just my relationships, but I think this is other people's relationships too. There's often a hidden subtext that exists inside of our relationships, and it typically comes back to power and power dynamics. And most of the time, this subtext is not spoken, at least in my experience. But it's this kind of quiet thread that runs underneath a person's unwillingness to do a certain kind of thing for their partner. Maybe it's a belief they have about, about their partner, where they just think, you know what, I'm just better at fill in the blank than my partner is. Or an underlying belief that like, well, you know, if, if our relationship ended tomorrow, I would kind of be okay. And so what happens is you have power infiltrate the relationship, where one person makes considerably more money than the other, one person is considerably more confident that if the relationship ended tomorrow, they would be able to find another partner, the other person or whatever else. And a lot of the time, these things, of course, travel together. You got issues of social status, which can really infect a relationship. My personal view is that it's pretty challenging for a relationship to survive a significant long-term power imbalance. So something needs to happen to get the couple onto a relative stance of equality with each other, even if that equality isn't going for 80 rather than going for 50 together, right? Because if one of the partners just feels like, you know what, end of the day, I'm kind of doing the work, I'm making the money and, you know, screw this, like that's a recipe for divorce, right? Or it's a recipe for the relationship ending. And those unspoken like power contentions are often just like, a major force inside of a relationship. And I'm wondering how you work with people, A, to get them more comfortable, just like with the reality that power is a thing, and B, to actually start talking about this stuff.
2: You've named something really essential, which is that Mm. power in many relationships operates in the background as this invisible force, sort of like gravity, It has a huge effect on the relationship, but nobody can really see it, and so therefore it's kind of hard to name. Mm -hmm. And so the first step, I think, is recognizing where and how power is already showing up. So we have this fascinating conversation where there was a woman who made more money than her husband, and she did sort of what you were describing, sort of in the, hey, nobody's allowed to know, but. Because I make more money (laughs) than my partner, I choose where we go on vacation because it's my money and so I choose. Mm. And once that became explicit, where they said, Oh, hey, so we're using money to determine joy for our family. Is that really a trade that we want to make? Or recognizing that, you know, one person would show up with power in other situations where they might control how the household runs. And so they control the, inf- the flow of information and somebody's left in the dark. And so they're making mistakes. Making that explicit and noticing what the unintended usually consequence of that is, is really helpful because then at least you're no longer playing with an invisible force. Mm-hmm. What we've also found is that structure is really useful to help bring power into balance. It isn't that then every single member of a couple is going to make exactly equal dollar amounts or that every single partner is going to do exactly the same things. That's not realistic. But having structure allows you to then be able to balance it with each other so that it works. Specifically about money, we talk about how having a budget is really useful so that it doesn't feel like gosh, I feel kind of squeamish. Am I spending his money? And so using one being explicit into some structure helps create more balance.
0: I don't know the exact right way to articulate this. So this might come out a little bit messy, but basically I I think that they're like what you're describing, a a frank conversation about finances that leads to an actionable point of, okay, we're going to work together to create a budget. That sounds great. It's a thing that most couples should do, probably, if they're in an established relationship where there's some sharing of finances. And also, it's terrifying for a lot of people. So there is this systemic problem that is being created because there is an unwillingness to face the core contention, which is that like we're spending money differently, or that we have a different view about money, or there is that underlying power thing. Do you ever talk with couples about like just working through that pain point and getting like what you need to do, whether it's internally or externally to like get to the ability to have that conversation?
3: Yeah, I think that's really important to point out. And I think to a certain extent, that's why for some people, there are certain conversations and money might be one of those in their relationship where you need a little bit of external structure. So having a marriage mm-hmm. counselor, having a coach. Sure.
0: can be extremely
3: helpful because there are certain conversations where if you do it together and it's too contentious, it'll just go off the rails and you can create even more problems for yourself. But I think if you do feel like you can have that conversation together, there are two things. One, the edge of your comfort zone is sort of like where growth can really, is, is possible in relationships. You know, all of these tools, like shifting to, Contribution and appreciation and having these conversations about power, they're all somehow running against our ordinary habits. And as a result, they're uncomfortable. And there's a part of us that doesn't want to feel that. So just that ability to sort of stay cool in the midst of discomfort, that's, that's thing one. But then the second thing is, as you're having these conversations, it can just be very useful to add a little bit more of that structure, to add data, as Kaylee was talking about earlier, you know, particularly around finances, we have found that some of our most explosive fights come when we're arguing about these really vague numbers that we think we understand, but we really don't understand. And often the resolution is actually as simple as building a spreadsheet where we're looking at actual data and we can say, oh yeah, this is actually how much we're spending. And, and the answer almost reveals itself in those situations. I think there's a range also
1: of situations. In other words,
3: some couples just take
1: a nudge. I'm also a longtime psychotherapist, and people come to me when they're in real trouble. And so there's that aspect. And so I'm thinking that different things are necessary with different levels of issues, of course. And I'm still very struck by the situation in which there is an, an inequity at just the basic level on the order of 15, 20 hours a week, particularly when children come along. And when that is the case, let's say, even if you foreground what's actually happening, one of the most useful things I would have couples do is to track their time, each of them, carefully, to the quarter hour over one whole week. And then some across different categories to come up with the grand total. It's always revelatory for people. And because it exposes, like you were saying earlier, the reveal aspect, Kaylee, what's going on. But then, frankly, you start running into deeply ingrained habits that are also deeply supported by cultural models and expectations, and also, frankly, incentives that in which one partner kind of just doesn't want to budge or just doesn't want to put the effort in. And then I'm thinking, okay, we've gotten to that point where one partner really has found their way into a ground of being that's very much like I think you, Nate, were describing—you know, heartfelt, open, not contentious. Okay, now you're in that ground of being, and second, from that ground of being, with the dignity and the gravity that comes from that ground of being, when it really is time to speak truth to power. it really is time to name what is in the room and to make a clear request. It's a request, it's not a demand, but it's, there could be consequences if the request is not fulfilled. And there you are with your, the other person who basically just doesn't wanna, <laughs> just ain't a gonna. And what do you do then, including in this frame of, an, they don't even buy the frame of the 80-80 relationship. And that's why they're in my office, right? Dragged, kicking and screaming usually. So anyway, what do you all do with a situation like that?
2: Part of what you've named is that people express their actual sentiment through their living. And so words will take you to a certain point, and then actions and the results that you're creating in the world will show if I say I'm bought into 8080, but what I keep creating in the world is complete inequity and an unwillingness to do anything different, then we know what we're working with. What we describe in 8080 marriage is that there's a distinction between a reluctant partner. This is what we were talking about earlier with Nate where, gosh, I don't really know what to do or I feel a little stuck or I'm trying but I don't really know. That is workable. An unwilling partner, which is what you've just described, gives the other person in the relationship a choice point. Much like Forrest, I am very much an optimist as it comes to relationships. I think in the abstract, I always want to land on the side of, working it, staying together, sort of honoring the commitment. And yet there is an important moment where individuals in relationship get to choose exactly as you were saying, Rick, from that ground of being, not from reactivity, but from a real place of in order to honor myself, in order to honor this relationship, I can either choose to accept the inequity. And stay with my own practice, recognizing my partner is not going to change. And this is an is. And all I determine is how I respond to it and whether my mindset can stay generous, appreciative, et cetera. Or I can choose to leave the relationship. And I think giving permission for there to be a choice point where I can say, this isn't working. Again, not like I'm making ultimatums or threats, but this is not working. And here are the options that I see. And if we can't come to that, then I'm going to make a different choice.
0: I think that that's a great thing to emphasize also, frankly, where there are a lot of reasons that people stay in relationships. Almost all of them are entirely understandable because it's an individual choice, right? And it's always possible to kind of like build a concept of a situation where a partner is just unmanageable in one way or the other. And then you, the person, have a decision tree, you know, that you can make around it. Unfortunately, for many people, there are reasons that they stay in relationships that have absolutely nothing to do with enjoying the relationship. They're very practical choices about caring for children, their financial decisions, their access to resources, decisions, whatever it is. And that's just like a very unfortunate reality of the whole thing. But moving back toward the the frameworks where you know the two people are invested they are interested they would like to improve the situation if possible you talked to so many different people to write this book like you had a lot of conversations for this sucker was there something that you found just like came up over and over again as a key skill that differentiated the the couples who at the very least like were able to improve from the ones that weren't
3: there were a couple key skills one was I will call it micro actions of contribution. Big acts of contribution are great. I don't want to diminish those. But a lot of the relationship masters were really good at these micro actions that would just happen throughout the day. So what I mean by this is leaving a post-it note on your partner's computer that says, I love you, or starting the coffee maker for them because you know that they like a morning cup of coffee. These kind of micro actions created this fabric of connection that was really powerful. Mm. The other one, which we talked about a little bit, was appreciation. So flipping those habitual glasses that we wear in relationship where we're looking for all the things that our partner did wrong and seeing instead, what did my partner do today that's worthy of appreciation? And then actually expressing that. So instead of just keeping it to yourself, Expressing that in some way or having some ritual like I described earlier, where every day when you sit down to dinner, there's a moment of gratitude or a moment of appreciation or some ritual where you're weaving this into the fabric of your everyday life. And I would say that's worth pointing out because I think a lot of people get stuck by thinking that there's some big change or big thing that they need to do when in reality, what we noticed in all of these conversations is it was really the little things. It was the micro actions, the micro habits that seemed to make all the difference.
2: An umbrella for some of what Nate's describing, I would call intentionality. That, again, couples who just sort of, hey, we got together or we got married and then we sort of assumed that it would just kind of flow. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't do nearly as well as the intentionality that Nate's describing around mindset, the intentionality of sitting down and saying, what are our values for this chapter? Or mm-hmm. what are our priorities? Or how do we want to create shared success with each other and mm-hmm. actively having the conversation And so I think an assumption that we can make that's worth making explicit is that the other people who really did the best in relationship made time for it on purpose. That, you know, sort of in all of my corporate work, we'll often talk about the image of a glass vase and the size of the rocks, that if you, you know, you put your big rocks in first and then the little rocks and then the gravel and then the sand If your relationship gets sand status, like forget it. You will very rarely get to it. And so deciding, Nate and I are very, very committed that every weekend we go for a hike together. Hmm. And so some people do date nights, some people do like a quarterly, you know, getaway. For us, it's every weekend, an hour, hour and a half on the trail together. That's, time that because we hold it as so precious allows us to do these practices as you're having those moments of connection the fewer interruptions the better Mm -hmm. and no phones allowed
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i think that's a great point to end today's conversation on so nate kaylee thanks so much for joining us today we had a great time doing this with you thank you
2: it was really fun thank you
3: Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation.
0: Today's conversation with Nate and Kaylee Klemp focused on different models of relationship and how we can move to a model of relationship that isn't just fair, but one that actually works for everyone involved, both practically in terms of how we set up different tasks and role responsibility inside of a relationship, and emotionally, in terms of feeling truly supported and seen by our partner. We began today's conversation by talking about Nate and Kaylee's relationship and some of the struggles that they went through as a partnership early on, which were largely attached to a common model of relationship that exists these days, and it's the 50-50 relationship. This form of relationship is a typical modern approach that really focuses on equality and fairness, And it arose in large part as a response to the old 80-20 relationship, which is kind of the classic madmen relationship, if you want to think about it that way, where one partner, typically the woman, is putting the overwhelming majority of effort into the relationship itself, while the other partner, typically the man, is the primary breadwinner and is putting most of his work in outside of the home. And you can see how this is fundamentally sexist and problematic in a lot of ways, and out of that arose a new model, a 50-50 model, where the idea was that both partners contribute in all spheres equally. And these days, a common view of relationship is what you might think of as the I want it all approach, where everyone is supposed to be very effective at home and a real go-getter in the office and showing up to their kid's soccer practice and making dinner at night and working 70 hours all at the same time. And you can see how this just isn't really that possible for most people. And one of the problems with this model is that when you have a tight pie of 100, any win for one person is kind of a loss for the other person. Me spending five more minutes watching TV or otherwise relaxing while my partner spends five more minutes doing the dishes gets added to the scorecard. And at the end of the week, we tally the scorecard up and we do a lot of squabbling over who did more and who did less and whether we actually have equality inside of our relationship. And so Nate and Kaylee looked at this and went, wow, our relationship had all of these problems based on our squabbles over fairness, essentially. And so they tried to move from a fairness model, which is 50-50, to a generosity model, which is how they think of 80-80. And this can really help people move past the when you gain, I lose dynamic that can easily appear inside of 50 50 relationships. And it has this relentless focus on what's good for us, what's good for the team of our relationship, as opposed to narrowly what's good for me. And they emphasize how 80 80 comes down to three key factors. The first is what you do, that's your contribution. The second is what you see, that's appreciation. And then the third is what you say, which is how you can reveal the full truth of your experience while also having a lot of kindness and understanding in your heart toward the other person. And when I think back over the conversation, there were two big areas that I think kept on coming up over and over again. And the first area is the ways in which people can make a significant mindset shift or can just reorient themselves toward thinking about things A little bit differently. And I thought a great example of this was when Nate talked about his own values and his own desire to be supportive of his daughter's experience. And then all of a sudden, showing up for the bus at 3 p.m. was not about, okay, I've checked this task off of my sheet and now I can ask for something else from my wife. It was no, this is a behavior that is in accordance with my real values. And the outcome is the same. But the feeling is radically different. So we've got that first arena of mindset. And the second arena, I think, just comes down to communication and effective communication and courage, really, being willing to brave a difficult and painful conversation with your partner, being willing to unearth some of the underlying power dynamics inside of the relationship that maybe both of you are uncomfortable with, but which exert this hidden influence over everything that goes on inside of the relationship. And those conversations are really hard, but they're also necessary because they move us out of an automatic relationship with our relationship. We just fall into a pattern of doing things a certain kind of way. Logan Yuri, who I spoke to on the podcast in the past, she I want to say that her title is something like the Director of Relationship Science or something like that at the dating app Hinge. uh, It was a wonderful conversation. She refers to this as sliding, where people just like slide from one decision to another inside of their relationship and moving from that sliding model to a real intentional choice model where things are the way that they are because we have collectively decided to make them that way. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time during the conversation talking about, because I think it's just a major issue, is what do you do when there is an actual imbalance inside of the relationship focused on effort? We know based on the research that, by and large, women contribute more to relationships, particularly in terms of contributing more to the relational aspects of the relationship than men do. And that's just the reality. You know, That is what the science says. That's not, of course, true of every single individual relationship But by and large, that's the case. So there are real power imbalances and real effort imbalances that exist inside of relationships. So how do you handle that? How do you handle a situation where one partner is really going for 80, but the other one is maybe at 40 if you're lucky? And we talked about a number of different things that people can do. Something that kept on coming up was just effective communication, you know, being thoughtful about how you express these to the other person being deliberate about setting aside time to talk about the nature of the relationship and the nature of your true experience. We also talked about the reality that we do have a capitalistic structure to our lives that does put an inordinate value on making money. And that can really infiltrate relationships and infiltrate the choices that we make inside of relationships. And then thinking a little bit about what people can do to limit the influence of that in negative ways on their relationship. So we talked about a number of different things, but something that I'm really glad that Kaylee emphasized at the end is how ultimately we all have a choice with our relationships. We can choose to continue being in it or we can choose to not. That's our choice. We have that freedom. And it's always possible to create a mock-up of a relationship where one partner just isn't going to do it, and then what do you do? And the answer is like, well, you have a choice. You either come to terms with the reality that they're not going to do it, or you leave the relationship. And that sounds really stark because it is really stark, but getting that real about it inside of yourself can just move it from feeling like this passive choice you're making to being a more active choice. And I think in that, there is the opportunity to reclaim a feeling of control and influence over your life when you feel like you've lost it. So again, Nate and Kaylee's book is The 80-80 Marriage. I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast if you would like to check that out. You can also find them on their website, which I've also linked to. And if you'd like to support the podcast while you're browsing through our links, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of about a cup of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Also, if you've somehow made it this far and you are not yet subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe. That really does help us out. And hey, if you could leave a rating and a positive review of the podcast on iTunes or similar, that's also really great for us and we truly appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.